Hello, and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is Series 4, Episode 16, The End of Mirth. Nighttime. A small, sudden line of hills, covered with a, a thick layer of wood. We are two, day, two days' journey south of the great monastery university of Nalanda in North India. And a monk from Nalanda lies there sleeping. He's come on a sort of retreat to try to understand the world around him better. And he gets more than he hopes for. Because that night, nightmares come to him. He sees the great monastery, but not as it was when he left it, full of lively debate. In his nightmare, the courtyards are empty. The monk's chambers are open. The stupas are neglected, and the only thing that roams through the halls are water buffalo, ruminating on the long grass. Everyone else is gone. In the nightmare, the monk walked on in, further into the great monastery complex, through the pavilions and the temples built by the great emperors of former times. There, on the top of one of them, he saw a figure shining with golden light. It was a bodhisattva. The monk wanted to go up there and join him, but the bodhisattva told him to wait. First, the monk must leave India, must go back to his homeland in China, for in ten years the current emperor of India would die. His underlings would turn on one another, slaughtering one another, and all would descend into chaos. And with that, the monk woke up. He resolved to go and see this emperor who was to die in ten years, and then to leave India forever. The monk was Shang Tsung, who we've met before. The emperor was Harsha, the man we've been following for most of this series. And the monk's prophetic dream would come true. Harsha would die. His empire would splinter into warring factions and North India would fall into chaos. And all of that would happen within seven years of the monk's dream. The monk said ten, although seven and ten look very similar in Chinese script. Anyway, this week we're going to tell the story of Harsha's fall, his death and what happened after. And that story... Well, it's not told at all by the Indian sources, because in the chaos after Harsha's death, no new coins were minted, no inscriptions carved, and certainly no biographies were written. Instead, the story of Harsha's death and the chaos afterwards comes only from the mouths of visitors to India. So this story is, is wrapped up inescapably with the story of Harsha's love affair with China. And so that is where we'll start. For many long years of his reign, Harsha had done little but fight. As the Chinese sources put it, for six long years, Harsha's elephants kept their saddles on and Harsha's soldiers kept their armour on, which must have smelt quite a bit. And in fact, smelt even more than you're thinking, because it was almost certainly more than six years that Harsha was fighting. But now, Harsha was done with that fighting. He was at peace with Pulakeshin's empire to the south, he was close allies with Vaskaravarman to the east, and he ruled the rest of North India pretty much supremely, either directly or indirectly through one of his many vassal kings. So Harsha turned his attention to outside of India, and in particular to the two great powers on India's doorstep, 
To the east, China. And to the west, Persia. And China seems to have had a special fascination for him. Harsha was almost always on the move. If it wasn't the rainy season, he was out with his temporary palace going around seeing his empire. And on his travels, he heard about this famous Chinese monk who was also travelling around India. That was the very monk who had the dream that we started with. So Harsha invited this Chinese monk. But for quite some time, the monk had not come to Harsha. The two of them had kept moving around India Harsha, from time to time, calling the monk to him like a, a father searching for his child in the supermarket. Harsha, in addition to trying to get hold of this Chinese monk, gathered whatever information he could find out about China. He even sent an embassy off to the Chinese emperor. And so when the Chinese monk had the dream and he finally decided to meet Emperor Harsha, Harsha's first questions were all about China. And in particular, all about Harsha's own counterpart, the Emperor of China. Now, Harsha knew surprisingly little about the Emperor of Harsha at this point, it seems. He didn't know the Emperor's name. He didn't really know any distinguishing features that you could pick out the Emperor by. Harsha knew that the Emperor was a sage and a composer of music, but that's not all that much to know about someone you've sent an emissary to. It's nothing you can spot in a person at first sight. Imagine choosing one of your ministers, your Harsha here. You load them up with goods and gifts, and, and you tell them to go off and meet the king of China. And when your emissary asks, oh, and who's the king of China? Where does he live? You just shrug and, and say, well, just go to China and find out. Actually, some features of, of Chinese culture were known in India. And in particular, Chinese music was known in India. It was played in the courts of Assam in, in northeast India. And Harsha may well have heard it there or even had it played in his own courts. According to ancient Chinese music buffs, it sounded a little bit like this. a piece called A Jade Tree's Rear Court Blossom, which is uh, preserved in Japan and has been recreated by modern scholars and played. I'll put the references up online. Anyway, the emperor of China was called Tang Taizong, or at least that's what he's called now, or it would be if it was pronounced correctly. Originally, Tang Taizong had a different name, and, and then when he became emperor, he changed it, and then well, it's all very complicated, so we're just going to call him the Tang Emperor. Back when the Tang Emperor had been the prince of the region of Qin, he and his father had fought for their throne. He beaten a rival prince, composed a song about it. A song that apparently had made its way over the Himalayas into Harsha's ears. The monk told Harsha more about Emperor Tang, singing his praises. Or at least that's what the monk said he did in a book he later gave to Emperor Tang himself. But Emperor Tang really does seem to have had a lot of features you could praise. He seems to have been a good one. Military success, cool-headed politics, a hatred of, of painful and damaging superstition. 
He brought China to hundreds of years of prosperity, and he's still admired in China today. Whilst this meeting between Harsha and the monk was going on, and Harsha was learning about how great his counterpart was, back in China, Harsha's emissary had arrived. He introduced Harsha as the King of Magda. It's worth stopping and thinking about that for a moment. Harsha introduces himself to the Chinese as the King of Magda, which is odd since his capital isn't in Magda at all, it's far upstream. Harsha seems to have been drawing on the prestige of Indian emperors of former ages who were based in Patliputra in Magda. Perhaps he was counting on those great names, Magda, Patliputra, to still carry imperial grandeur in the ears of his Chinese listeners. But whether it was the appeal to ancient emperors or something else, Emperor Tang was impressed. In fact, he was impressed enough to want to open formal relationships with India. So he sent out an envoy of his own, a man with a military background, a cavalry commander known for his speed. He laid him down the cavalry commander with tribute and sent him off to Harsha's court. Those were the first exchanges in a frantic period of activity between India and China, between the two emperors, in fact. In less than a decade, less than eight years maybe, six embassies were sent on the long road between China and India. The two places were about to fall into a whirlwind romance. According to Chinese sources, when the Chinese embassy finally made its way to the gate of Harsha's court, Harsha rushed out to meet them. He bowed himself. In fact, he bowed so low that he was prostrated flat on the ground, stretched out to receive the emperor's letter. He pressed it to his head as if the letter was giving blessing to Harsha. This whole scene is a little bit melodramatic, and some historians doubt that it happened at all, though at least it follows a a pattern long established in India. Kings bowing low, scraping in the dirt, and otherwise being ostentatiously humble. Usually kings did this in front of a religious figure, and not some unknown, dusty cavalry commander from an almost unknown land. The more plausible part of the Chinese story is that Harsha was delighted that the Emperor of China had chosen to establish relationships with his court. Has anyone received an embassy from Great China Land? he asked. Great China Land is what Indians often call China. Over the centuries, plenty of embassies had in fact come from China to India. In fact, we've mentioned at least a couple in earlier series of this podcast, but if Harsha's audience knew about those previous embassies, They chose to keep quiet. No, Harsha. No one's ever received an embassy from Great China Land. Wise. You don't want to burst an emperor's bubble just because it's full of hot air. Envoys from China tended to stay a while after they delivered their letter. They were often ardent Buddhists, it seems, or at least they took the opportunity to see the motherland of Buddhism. They went like tourists around the great sites. Modgaya, where Buddha had come enlightened under a tree. Vulture Peak, where Buddha had spent so much time with his disciples. Rajagriha, the the nearby city where Buddha had converted the king. The Chinese emissaries would go around seeing these places, and of course they couldn't take selfies to commemorate the occasion because ancient Chinese emissaries almost always left their smartphones at home. Instead, the Chinese emissaries would leave plaques, sort of posh posh way of saying, I was here. 
And that's exactly what this emissary did. They went around and they put up their plaques, and then they went home. However, they did not go home alone. Harsha sent his own men to be with them on the long journey back to China, an envoy of his own to escort them back. The Chinese sources say little about this envoy, other than that he was Brahmin. But the Chinese sources usually talk about everyone in India being a Brahmin, when in fact it's actually only a very small percentage of Indians, about one in 20 people or so. This move by Harsha, sending an envoy to escort the envoy back, it's a little bit... Well, you can see where it's going to go now. There's a, a precedent set, you send an envoy, and I'll send an envoy to guide him back, then my envoy's with you, so you send an envoy to guide my envoy back, and you hang up, no, I'll hang up, no, you hang up, no. You can see what's going to happen. And, in fact, it's exactly what happened. Because the same year that the emissary returned to China with Harsha's emissary in tow, that very same year, Emperor Tang had an imperial decree issued. Another emissary would be sent to guide this Brahmin back to India. By the way, we know the names of all of these Chinese emissaries and often their seconds in command too. This expedition to escort the Brahmin back was led by a chap called Li Yipiao, or something very, very, very roughly like that. My Chinese pronunciation is even worse than my Indian pronunciation. Like many of the Chinese emissaries who made their way to India, Li was experienced with both religion and war. In this case, he had been an assistant to the temples and a protector of the army. And this combination of religiosity and military experience kind of makes sense if you have to lead a dangerous expedition to the homeland of your religion. Li's second in command was a chap called Wang, Wang, who had been a county magistrate. None of these names you need to know. Harsha, when he received the second embassy emissary, was even more excited than when he had received the first. As the Chinese party marched towards Harsha's capital, they cut through this sweet-smelling smoke that, that lay across the road. It rose from incense that had been planted on either side of the road all the way along. And then came the crowds, whole cities out to see the foreigners. And then, even before they came into the city, they met Harsha's highest ministers, and with them, the Emperor Harsha himself. He turned east, as if looking towards his Chinese counterpart, and then he received the letter. And Harsha sent out another emissary in response, laden down with gifts, pearls, incense, and the most valuable of all, a cutting of the Bodhi tree, the tree under which Buddha had achieved enlightenment. And that would have been especially valuable because the tree was fading. It had been attacked by enemies of Buddhism, its roots burnt, blackened, twisted though it might have been that it had been replanted many times since Buddha's enlightenment, which after all was many, many centuries before. Step back a minute, though, and, and have a think. Why did Harsha have this obsession? Why did he send out these envoys? They must have cost him an awful lot of money, laden down with, with provisions and, and the most precious gifts he had to give. Now, the official story for why the, the emissaries were sent was that the two countries wanted to set up formal relations. But that hardly solves things, because why would the two countries be so keen to do that? After all, 
The Himalayas kept the two empires so far apart in practical terms that there was no worry of one invading the other. And in any case, setting up formal relations doesn't require six envoys. Lines of incense. Lots of bowing and scraping and paying homage. So what's going on? What's Harsha's obsession about? One historian claims that Harsha needed help desperately. His empire was falling apart. But this is a pretty rocky bit of reasoning. There's no, empire, uh, there's no evidence at all that Harsha's empire was falling apart. And anyway, if it was falling apart, China would be a really bad place to turn to for help. Someone you don't know, who's far too far away to send anything more than a few dozen men. And those few dozen men would anyway take the better part of a year to get to India. As a military defensive ally, China would have been a complete waste of time. Harsha's obsession might just have been pure curiosity, of course. Emperor Harsha and Emperor Tang had things in common. Obviously they were both emperors, but it was more than that. They were both emperor artists. Harsha was a playwright. And almost the first thing he, he said about Emperor Tang when he met the monk was, Emperor Tang was a songwriter. And indeed he was. More than that, he was an emperor poet. Although it's not exactly clear that he was a good emperor poet. Uh, about a millennia or more later, Chairman Mao would rubbish his poetry as quite inferior. Actually, I'll let you judge for yourself how good Emperor Tang's poems are. We have some poems on a monument. Each was uh, with a picture of a horse. The horse has been named by the emperor, and beneath is a poem of the emperor. So one of these horses has this, uh, this saffron-coloured curly hair and some name that I just can't pronounce at all. There's a picture of the horse with its curly hair with nine arrows pierced into it and the emperor's poem beneath. The moon rabbit grabbed the bridle. The stars of Scorpio crossed the heaven in their course. The dog star carried the halberd. The dusty mist brought the end. So, okay, let's try another one. So, there's a horse with a name which means Autumn Dew, and the painting is it's actually a painting from a real moment of a real battle. The horse has been stuck by an arrow, and, and a general is pulling, from, pulling the arrow from it, and, and the horse is just stoically standing there and letting the arrow be pulled. And the poem by the emperor beneath goes like this. It was as restless as a purple swallow. It pranced with its high spirits. It was feared along the region of the three rivers. It struck awe into the enemy on all battlefields. Maybe it loses something in the translation. And anyway, it wasn't just poetry that Harsha and Emperor Tang had in common. There was also a personal interest and connection to Buddhism. In Harsha's case, that's because his family was involved. His sister was a devout Buddhist, and some of his advisors were too. And in fact, Harsh himself might have been converted. According to Chinese sources, he was. Tang, Emperor Tang also had a personal interest in Buddhist holy texts and doctrine. But it might have been more base instincts that led Harsha to reach out to his Chinese contemporary. Harsha was at peace. And he was at peace because... There was really no one left to fight. 
Up in North India, everyone was already subdued. Harsha had tried to subdue the South too, but they were too powerful. It was a stalemate. So how to expand your glory as an emperor if everything's conquered? Well, an obvious way is to convince the great empires of the world to treat you as an equal, as a peer. So there are a bunch of different possible reasons why Harsh is reaching out. Probably the reality is there's some mix of these different reasons involved in Harsh's decisions. I'm really clear about my own motivations. I really don't have much of a chance of working out Harsh's. But at least one more motivation should be mentioned because it's a motivation we do know applied on the Chinese side. It's explicit in the ancient Chinese sources. One of the reasons that the Chinese emissaries were sent to India was to get technology. In particular, one of the emissaries was told to learn the Indian method of making sugar and take it back to China. And China, over the, these centuries, had a very keen interest in Indian knowledge. Chinese libraries contained books of it. One library we know of had 12 books from Indian science. There was Brahminical medicine, Brahminical astronomy, Brahminical mathematics. Brahminical here, in this context, just means Indian. And a few more books as well. All of those books are lost now, sadly. Only they've left a trace in the list of books that were once held in that library. So China and India are learning from one another. There was more of that to come in the next and final expedition. Six forty-eight A.D., Emperor Tang sent out another expedition to India, and like most expeditions, it wasn't a huge affair. There was the man in charge, a chap called Wang, a second in command, a chap called Chang, and thirty men. They loaded their horses up with the necessities of travel and the presents for various kings, and then set out for India. The following month, they arrived. But their reception in India was the exact opposite, almost, that the envoys before them had received. Because Emperor Harsha was dead. We don't know how he died, although he would have been around 53, a sort of decent age, so it might have been natural causes. Harsha left no clear heir. He had children, at least he had one daughter, she had been married to a kingdom to the west, more of that in a different episode. But he doesn't seem to have had any sons, at least none are mentioned anywhere, and none stepped up to take his throne. The Chinese expedition, when it came into India, ran into someone claiming to be the successor of, of Emperor Harsha. But he wasn't part of Harsha's family. Instead, he was one of Harsha's ministers, or, or maybe a man that Harsha had appointed governor. And this successor wasn't ruling Harsha's empire either. Instead, he was ruling far downstream up against the mountains from Harsha's capital. And it's hard to make out this supposed successor's name because all we have is a distorted Chinese version. But the name might have been Arjuna or, or something like that. And the successor king's 
attitude was the opposite of Harsha's attitude, where Harsha had been deferential to the Chinese emissaries, to the point of absurdity, bowing and scraping. This successor chap was an ass. He initially seems to have asked for the gifts due to Harsha. I'm the inheritor, give them to me. And when he was turned down, he simply attacked. He sent his army against the 32 horsemen of the Chinese embassy emissary. And the Chinese emissary did the smart thing. That night, they left all their riches on the valley floor, and they fled through the darkness, heading for the hills, making their way up into the Himalayas, away from the brutality and incivility below. And up there in the mountains, the Chinese run into some friends. At this point in time, the Himalayan kingdoms of, of Nepal and Tibet were pretty friendly with China. In fact, both had married into the Chinese royal family, a Chinese princess being married off to these mountain kings, one each. And the Chinese emissary took full advantage of, of all the goodwill that had been built up with China and these Himalayan kingdoms. He asked Nepal and Tibet for troops, for an army to go back down into India. And he got troops too, a lot of them. Our sources differ on how many, but it might have been as many as 1,200 crack troops from Tibet and a whopping 7,000 cavalry from Nepal. That seems like an awful lot of cavalry for a small mountain kingdom, but that's what the source says. The emissary led his troops down into India. Three countries' forces united against a splinter of Harsha's empire. The Meta Champaran is important in the, in the story of modern India, but it was a poor capital city for a successor of Harsha. Nonetheless, the dregs of Harsha's empire stood up impressively well. For three days they held out, before they finally broke and ran. Almost 10,000 of the Indian soldiers jumped into the river and drowned. 3,000 men who refused to jump were captured and their heads cut off. But the successor king, he escaped. He fled and managed to reassemble an army, somehow urging them back into battle. But again, he was defeated by the Chinese and their allies. And this time, the successor king was captured along with 12,000 men and 30,000 oxes and horses. The successor king's retinue were captured too, including an Indian magician. And a fragment of the work of this Indian magician has come down to us. Indian magician is the, the Chinese way of looking at it. This Indian magician talks about water made from rocks of the mountains. It can come in, in several colours. And it dissolves everything. Herbs, wood, even metal. Sometimes it feels hot to the touch, sometimes cold. But actually don't touch it at all. Because this stuff, this water will burn right through your skin. You have to hold it in special flasks made of camel skulls just to make sure it doesn't, doesn't dissolve. This seems to be one of the earliest descriptions of mineral acids. Sulfuric acid, hydrochloric acid and all that. Anyway, the successor and his court were captured. But remarkably, his army fought on without them. The Indian army here showing incredible determination in the face of repeated defeat. But... It was hopeless. They had simply lost too many men. There was a third and final battle, and they were annihilated entirely. The Chinese emissary and the army with him 
had gained such dominance that it seems like the other fragments of Harsh's empire were scared of them. Bhaskara Varman, Harsh's firm ally and probably subordinate over in northeast India, he sent a message with lots of tribute for the emperor and asking if he could have a statue of the founder of Taoism. The emissary received all of this and then headed back with his remaining band of horsemen to China. According to Chinese sources, the whole trip only took the emissary about three months, of which quite a few days would have been spent fighting battles, and and that seems immensely implausible. Even if the emissary had taken the sea voyage, he would not have had time to get to India, put two feet on Indian soil, get back on the ship, and then back to China. On the other hand, you can imagine the emissary rushing back. Maybe not three months, but maybe not a year. He would be rushing with the successor king as his captive and his alchemist too. Rushing back to the emperor to make his report about all the changes that India had suffered and to get his reward. In the 22nd year of Chen Quan, the emperor sent Wang Xuanze, who was Yu Wei Shua Fu Changshi, sorry Chinese listeners, on a mission to the country India, with Chiang Shijian as second in command. Before their arrival, Harsha died, and the kingdom fell into disorder. His minister, the king of Nafu, Alunashun by name, set himself up and sent troops to resist Wang Xuanze. Wang then had an escort of only a few tens of men, so they were overcome and all perished. The objects offered in tribute by the various kingdoms were pillaged. Wang escaped and fled to the western frontier of Tibet and summoned armed help from the neighbouring countries. Tibet came with a thousand soldiers, while Nepal came with seven thousand horsemen. Wang disposed his army into groups and advanced as far as the, as the town of Cha Tupahulu. At the end of three days he took it. 3,000 heads were cut off and 10,000 who jumped into the water were drowned. Alunashin left the kingdom, fled and gathered together his dispersed troops into battle formation again. Shi Jian took him prisoner and captured and decapitated his followers in thousands. The remnants of his people rallied round the king's wife and child and barred the passage to the river. Chien Tuoi. Shi Jian attacked and routed them. He took prisoner the wife and the son of the king and captured 12,000 men and women and 30,000 various domestic animals. He received the submission of 580 cities and villages. The king of eastern India, Sri Kumara, that's Bhaskaravarman, sent as a gift 30,000 oxen and horses as provisions for the army and also bows, swords and spears. The kingdom of Kamarupa offered curiosities to the emperor and a map of the country and asked for a statue of Lao Tzu. Wang Shuangse took prisoner Alunashan and humbly offered him to the emperor. Wang was promoted to the rank of Chao's son, Tafu. And on that rather confused and sad note, the series draws to a close, or rather the narrative part of the series, the standard episodes, because we're going to be having a series of special episodes about life in Harsha's time, and also focusing on on the different kingdoms that didn't really get a look in in the main storyline. 
I hope you've been enjoying the podcast. If you have, please consider donating to my wife's charity, the Snail Situ Patrick Memorial Fund. Details are on the website. There's a link to that in the description. Have a great week and a happy new year. Take care.